The Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by SeatGeek, the best app for buying and selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, and more. For $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase on any game or sporting event, use promo code RINGERMLB. Download the SeatGeek app or go right to SeatGeek.com. Let's kick the tires and light the fires. This is the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman. I am a staff writer at the Ringer. As always, we are brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, home of the Ringer NBA show, which is doing to your ears what the Golden State Warriors are doing to the Houston Rockets. There's new content throughout the playoffs, so I'd encourage you to check that out. I'm also proud to introduce you to On Shuffle with Micah Peters, our brand new music podcast and latest addition to the Ringer Podcast Network. And if reading is your thing, we've got two new baseball stories up today. First is based on my weekend conversation with Cleveland Indians right-hander Mike Clevenger, uh, famous for his colorful cleats, which drew the ire of Major League Baseball. I talked to him about that, as well as his new and important role in the Cleveland Indians rotation. Later on the show, I'll be talking to Claire McNear about Rich Hill's latest chapter in his Job-like career, as well as Washington Nationals' wunderkind Juan Soto, and Ben Lindbergh will come on to talk about two very hard-throwing relief pitchers, Jordan Hicks of St. Louis and Josh Hader of Milwaukee. But first, I want to direct your attention to another article up today on Tampa Bay and their new and innovative approach to starting pitching. And here to talk about that article is its author, Zach Cram. I am the opener. It's fitting. Oh, man, I didn't even think about that. That's incredible. So we're going to talk about the Tampa Bay Rays opener experiment. Zach's written about this for the ringer.com. Um, the long and short of it is they had Sergio Romo, who had never started a game in his life, start back to back games over the weekend. And uh, there's been a lot of discussion over this and a lot of both positive and negative opinions that kind of mischaracterize what this actually is. So let's start with this. You know, what is this and what is it not? Yeah, so I think strategically, this ploy by Kevin Cash and presumably the Rays front office who analyzed this idea and then implemented it is rather brilliant. It involves Sergio Romo, who, as you said, had never started a game before. I think he had relieved in 588 career games and then he started on consecutive days the first day he pitched one inning struck out the side and the second day he pitched one and a third innings and struck out three more hitters didn't allow a run either time and it was because the Rays who are already working with an interesting rotation this year they're having fewer starters and a lot of bullpen days their scheduled starters for those days were left-handed pitchers, both youngsters, both vulnerable to the Angels lineup, which boasts a lot of right-handed hitters at the top in Zach Cozart and Mike Trout, Justin Upton, Albert Pujols, and Jelton Simmons. So with Shohei Otani not in the lineup either day, the Angels were really right-handed oriented. And by starting Romo on those days, they could allow him to face the toughest righties the first time through the order, Trout and Upton, and then let the left-handed pitcher who would come in later in the game still go deep, still pitch about the same number of innings as he might have otherwise, just against a more opportunistic part of the lineup. 
So you mentioned a couple of historical precedents for something like this, including the uh, Bucky Harris maneuver, which Ben and I talked to Stephen Goldman about on the pod last year. Uh, This is not a completely novel idea, but it is something that Romo being so being a low arm slot righty, having lefties Anthony Banda and Ryan Yarbrough coming in behind him could force uh, Mike Sosha in this case to alter his lineup and put the Angels at a platoon disadvantage for more of the game than they might have with a traditional starting pitcher lined up for this game. Right. I think it's important to distinguish between what the Rays did over the weekend and other broader proposed changes to the pitching structure. This wasn't bullpenning in the, I guess, traditional sense where, you know, sometimes teams will start one guy who only goes for an inning and then bring another guy who only pitches an inning or two and then another guy who pitches an inning or two and they'll end up pitching seven or eight guys over the course of a game. This is to some extent like what the Yankees did in the wild card game last year, even if that was inadvertent and brought on by circumstance rather than plan. This was Sergio Romo, especially on Saturday, pitching one inning and then Ryan Yarbrough came in and pitched for six and a third innings. So they still got the length that a typical starter would bring, just they reordered the the pitching setup instead of going starter reliever 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 they went reliever starter reliever and that is what is so novel about this idea and one i think the the platoon idea while it might have been the impetus to try it out over the weekend against the angels and that was sort of necessary for the initial imagining of this idea that's not necessary i think for this to work as i wrote about in my piece Throughout baseball history, the first inning has been the highest scoring inning, and there's a simple reason for that. It's the only inning where a team's one, two, and three hitters are guaranteed to bat. Those are usually the best hitters on a team, and the second inning, conversely, is where historically scoring has been the lowest because that's usually the bottom of the order and not the top. So by bringing in a more effective reliever to try and quell a first inning rally or, or an outburst, I think is smart, and then you allow... The starting pitcher, who in Yarbrough's case is not Max Scherzer, he's not even uh, Blake Snell or Chris Archer, you allow him to settle in against the bottom of the order when he initially enters the game. So this uh, this is really just the logical extreme of the Andrew Miller 2016 playoffs role, where you don't hold your best relievers to pitch against whoever happens to be up in the 8th or ninth. You set them out. For, or you set your relievers out for specific matchups. In this case, Romo against all these righties at the top of the Angels lineup. And it, the, one important thing about this, I think there might be some, and there's such a small sample of just this having been done twice, we we can't really draw any data out of this. It feels like something that would just be weird enough to sort of throw your opponents off. And one risk that uh, that you'd run with this is throwing your own players off. Is Yarbrough okay? Is Bando okay coming out of the bullpen and staying in for a long period of time? And one thing that you mentioned in your piece that Kevin Cash said was that Romo was all for this. And I think that's the single most important thing that makes me skeptical of bullpenning in the Brian Kenny sense of the word is that there is as hackneyed as this is, there's a human element to these are guys doing a job. Like if I came in and didn't know and thought I was going to be doing one thing at work one day and was told I was going to be doing something completely different and it changed wildly from day to day and there was no plan. It would be more difficult for anybody to to do their job under those circumstances. So getting buy-in from Romo is incredibly important here. 
I agree. And it makes me think of some other innovations around baseball over the last few years or decades. And Russell Carlton at Baseball Prospectus published a piece today about the shift where uh, we just got a whole bunch of new data about how teams fare with and without the shift. And he found that while the shift, especially on the infield, prevents a lot of singles, the walk rate that pitchers allow when pitching in front of the shift actually goes up. And he hypothesized that maybe pitchers just felt a little uncomfortable because it was so unusual to be pitching in front of the shift that they actually give back some of those gains. So I think you're right, whether it be Romo buying in or Yarbrough or Anthony Banda, who is the race uh, quote-unquote starter for Sunday, being young enough that they're able to buy into this idea, I think that's especially important. Maybe this will need to start out at lower levels, like the Astros have infamously piggybacked starters in the minor leagues for a while. Now, the Astros rotation is so good that there's no reason they would possibly need to implement this strategy in the major leagues right now, but I think it might require some buy-in in the minors, so a guy might be used to coming in in the second or third inning as opposed to the first, and that a reliever would need to be ready to pitch at 1 o'clock instead of 7 o'clock, or I guess a three-hour difference instead of a six-hour difference. But th- it does require so much buy-in there. And while the gains, I think, are meaningful, they're also fairly small on a day-to-day basis. It's not like you know Romo was a guarantee to come in and strike out the side in the first inning. He very well could have given up two runs. So because the gains might be sp- important when they're spread out or the- over the course of a season, but they're small on a day-to-day basis, they could easily be co- counteracted if the organizational and player buy-in is not sufficient to keep performance sustainable. The other thing about that is there's a physical aspect to actually warming up and getting in the game. And this is something, I think this is the single biggest missing link in terms of armchair, you know, you mentioned out of the park baseball uh, in your story, which is a game we both love. And part of the, the fun of that simulation is doing all sorts of weird things with your bullpen, but you don't have to warm up relievers in that game. And I think that's the, the biggest missed factor in terms of why bullpens are used the way they are, because that's a huge driver of fatigue. It's a huge changer of uh, the comfort level of a major league pitcher. There was a suggestion, I saw it, uh, that teams try this, they go to the top of the first, you know, they go to a Romo type guy to chase a, a matchup in the top of the first. If they score a ton of runs in the bottom of the first, then they can pinch hit and just skip their skip their starter. Well, that's not really that doesn't really mean that you can just bring him back the next day on full rest because there's a whole process, a whole routine in between starts. And maybe one day we reach a point in baseball where this kind of strategy becomes so commonplace that pitchers are just uh, are just conditioned to throw two or three innings every two or three days. And it doesn't doesn't really take anything more out of them than five inning start or a six inning start once every five days does now. Uh, but it's, it would be a huge paradigm shift. And I think that's one of the is a reason to pump the brakes on this is any sort of anything more than just a very specific confluence of team and circumstance and roster and manager. Well, Terry Francona, for instance, has talked about this where he's one of the the new innovators in bullpen strategy. And I think last year he was asked why Andrew Miller pitches sometimes when they're up four or five runs. And he said, I don't want to warm Miller up and then not insert him into the game. Exactly. But I do think if you have a regimented pre-planned strategy entering games, it does make it somewhat easier. If 
you're saying automatically Sergio Romo pitches the first inning and he's relieved by the normal starter in the top of the second. That starter could theoretically just push his warm-up back a little bit. I think when you get into, oh, we're going to change our strategy based on how that first inning goes, that's where I think you run into problems. It would require exactly. I think yeah, so it would require the buy-in before the game starts, and it would require the manager to stay true to that plan during the game. And I think more than that, it would require understanding what preparing to pitch one day and having the start moved back indefinitely perhaps would do to a pitcher's body. And that's that just doesn't strike me as the kind of experiment that uh, teams would want to use or would want to risk. You know, you mentioned Max Scherzer. You don't want to risk Max Scherzer uh, on anything but a traditional throwing pattern because he's so good on that throwing pattern. There's no reason to change anything. But that brings up another point that this is the Razor in a situation. You mentioned the Astros piggybacking uh, in the minor leagues. They're in a situation where they're just not Uh, let's let's just say it they're not fielding a competitive major league pitching staff they didn't have enough starting pitchers to start the season part of their plan revolved on revolved around nathan evaldi pitching every uh every fourth or fifth day and that has gone about as well as you would have expected chris archer hasn't pitched well they really just have a bunch of interchangeable middle relief arms in addition to um snell and archer Uh, you know no undue disrespect intended to to Matt Andrees, but this they're in a situation where they are being innovative, which is cool, but they're doing it because of economic restrictions forced on them by the front office or by ownership, which I think is, and I don't, I don't get that. I don't think the call, like, I don't think they're doing this in order to save money. I think they have to be creative in or because they're not, uh, shelling out enough to to feel a competitive team otherwise. I think there are levels to this. I mean, if I were playing out of the park baseball and I were the Yankees going up against Houston, I might just start Chad Green for the first inning or two and then throw CC Sabathia behind him because then you have Chad Green, who's a dominant right-handed pitcher to face Springer, Bregman, Altuve, and Correa at the top of the lineup. Uh, there's also the benefit there that if you don't want a guy going too far the third time through the order, then if he is facing any batters a third time, it's batters at the bottom of the order as opposed to the sluggers at the top. But I can't see the Yankees ever trying that right now. And that's why, as I wrote in my piece, I think it might take roughly a decade before we really see this begin to take hold. I compared it to the introduction of the closer role in baseball, which sort of happened in the late 1970s with Bruce Sutter, but really didn't take hold until Tony La Russa implemented strongly with Dennis Eckersley on a World Series team a decade later. So I think right now it will kind of be consigned to the Tampas of the world who need to try whatever they can to get that extra edge to push their staff up to to competent. But one, it strikes me as odd that we don't see any of these tanking teams experimenting more why don't the Marlins try this? It's not like their staff is great. They should see if something works. So the next time they might be able to field a winning team, they already have worked out the kinks with this strategy. But two, I think it will be a much longer time before we see winning teams try this. Would the Yankees do this with two starting pitchers going on regular rest and then two or three days with openers? Not now, but in 2028, I think it's certainly a possibility. Here's why 
I don't, I'm not wild about doing this at the big league level. And you mentioned the Astros piggyback starters. This isn't like they didn't do that the same for the same reason that Tony Russo was toying with having three pitchers go three innings each. They did it to get as many pitchers as possible starter level reps or starter like reps where you're going through the through the order multiple times. And this is one reason I like what the Rays have done with uh, with Romo and Yarborough and Banda more than just trotting out nine guys for one inning each. And that's your you don't know that. These like I wouldn't bet on Ryan Yarbrough or, or Anthony Banda uh, being any sort of difference making pitcher, but I also would have said the same thing about Dallas Keuchel, Colin McHugh, and Chris Stavinsky, who were brought up, who got a lot of reps for really bad Astros teams, and uh, or you know Brad Peacock, for instance, who came up wound up being able to do more than that one inning relief role because he was given the opportunity, and I think. These reps in you know, major league starts are at a premium, really, and it's a. I would be hesitant to, to undertake any strategy focused on short term games that, that doesn't leave open the possibility for a Dallas Keuchel to emerge from this staff, and maybe he doesn't. You know, maybe that guy is not in there, but you don't know for sure. And I think the gains are so huge uh, that it's a big risk to try something unconventional, and. Maybe you don't let a pitcher develop like that. That's a good point. And this is certainly unorthodox in a number of respects, both because of just how it actually works and having to come up with new terminology, which isn't something we have to do very often in a sport that's been around as long as baseball, but also because of those trickle-down effects and how it might mess with pitcher development, how it might mess with morale, frankly, and... I think Tampa is a, a very good testing ground for this. They were one of the first teams to adopt the shift, which stayed. They're also one of the first teams to adopt a four-man rotation idea, which I imagine won't stick. So I think the the jury's still out on whether this opener, which is all of two games old now, will stick. I don't even know when Tampa's going to use it the next time. But as someone who, like you said, has been experimenting with these kinds of things in my own baseball mind for a while, it's exciting to see it work. And even though we shouldn't be judging the process by the results, especially over a two-game sample, it was kind of encouraging to see Romo strike out the side and you know, and not give up a run at all. Because if he had come out and give up four runs, this might have not taken off at all, and now at least there's somewhat mm-hmm. of a chance. And if, if nothing else, it's novel. So there's you know something to be said for for just trying something different, and you know, whatever the motives, whatever the the outcome. Yeah, over the course of a six-month season, it's nice to have these little these little warps and ripples in the middle of, you know, it's not even Memorial Day yet, and we're talking about something new, and we'll get back to Shohei Otani soon, I'm sure. But at least for now, it's fun to talk about strategy. So if you're if you're the Sergio Romo of this podcast, when are you going to grow your Sergio Romo goatee? Oh goodness, I think you have me beaten that department. Okay, well, next week we'll check in on your your facial hair and the state of the Rays uh, starting rotation, if you can even call it that anymore. But until then, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Thanks, Zach. We'll be back with Claire McNear and Rich Hill and Juan Soto right after these messages. Want an unfair advantage to dominate your fantasy baseball league? Well, look no further and download SquadQL for free for your Apple and Android devices. SquadQL is the only mobile app you need to crush your friends and rivals this year. It recommends the best starting lineup each day based on your starters, bench players, and free agent pool. 
So how does SquadQL actually work? The app connects directly with your Yahoo, ESPN, and CBS leagues, pulling in your actual roster and your lead scoring system. It also provides waiver wire recommendations, daily updates to player rankings, and much more. Head to the Apple app and Google Play stores and download SquadQL, your all-in-one fantasy baseball manager. SquadQL is brought to you by the creators of RotoQL, the leading daily fantasy lineup optimizer trusted by more than 100,000 DFS players. You can also download RotoQL for free for both Apple and Android. So over the past few days in Ringer MLB Slack, we've been talking about peeing on your hands, which means Rich Hill's blister is acting up, which means it's time to talk to my next guest, Claire McNear. Claire. Poor Rich Hill. It's been a bad year for him. He, uh, you know, April 18th, he, he goes to the DL with a cracked middle fingernail, which sounds very unpleasant. And he apparently that happened while he was throwing a fastball. And then, just as he was about to come back, he was scratched before a start uh, when that cracked nail got infected. And then he comes back and he has a couple kind of shaky starts. And then on May 19th, he threw exactly two pitches before a very bad blister thing happened. And uh, this is a sentence you never want to hear your boss say about you. And it is from Dave Roberts. The skin did completely tear open. So he's he's got a bad situation. The blister, I guess, it just completely, uh, I don't know what the right word is, um, pop, pop. As bad as I feel for Rich Hill, and there's really just nobody who has struggled more with injuries, who's overcome more in terms of injuries to to get to where he is. And this is not coming at a great time for for the Dodgers because Hill is on the on the shelf. Julio Urias is on the shelf. Hyunjin Ryu, Tom Kohler, Clayton Kershaw, all uh, currently injured. Alex Wood may or may not be ready for his start this weekend. So the the Dodgers are in a rough spot, but also it just feels kind of absurd. And we all know that there are, that blisters are a serious problem for pitchers, particularly pitchers like Hill, who rely so much on the touch and feel for their, their breaking pitches. But it does seem a little ridiculous from the outside that this one little thing, like this is the how how thin is the balance between able to pitch and not. Right. I mean, it's it's such a weird thing where, um, you know, nothing nothing about the mechanics of baseball seems normal or seems like it should work. But, mm-hmm. you know, for the most part, for most players in the majors, it, it, they make it work, right? And simultaneously, you know, there's, like, the, the internal logic is, like, well, of course throwing a baseball 90-something miles per hour would give you a horrible, debilitating blister. But um, it, it's weird to see that sort of happened like this. And I mean, and he'll obviously have just had the worst luck with this. And, um, you know, he's, I believe, appealing to the league right now to be allowed to pitch with his finger wrapped in medical tape. Uh, the LA Times reported yesterday that he is, in fact, trying out some uh, unconventional bluster treatments, including, as you mentioned, peeing on his hand, which he did previously in the NLDS two years ago. And he's I guess trying some sort of laser therapy and chugging apple cider vinegar, which I don't, I, I mean, I'm not a doctor. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a cruel, horrible thing that he's, he's just struggled with again and again and again. Yeah. I mean, I love watching Rich Hill pitch. I certainly wish him a speedy recovery. Uh, but the real reason we're talking about this is the picture that was going around. And it was the picture of Hill with his blister ripped open and, uh, it was circulating frequently with the caption like, oh, my God, you don't want to look at this gruesome injury. And it wasn't like, can I can I level with you? It wasn't that bad. 
like we've seen Trevor Bauer almost bleed out from his hand on the mound during a playoff game. And that's it's set the bar so high in the grand scheme of gory sports injury pictures. This one does not it, it's probably not in the, the upper echelon of that. But uh, and you know, certainly does not compare compared to a to a drone injury. But I think I think maybe for most people, it's maybe a much more relatable injury than a. Uh, than say having you know your leg gruesomely broken or or a drone That's your hands. Um, just in that like I I have seen such an injury on my own foot before <laughs> from like sandals. So fortunately I don't have to use that for uh, for work or, or wear sandals for work. So you know, but it's I would not like to look at um, a, a torn open finger frequently. I would say. Okay, I I just think in a post Trevor Bauer world, let's. Let's not throw up the gore signal so wantonly. Uh, do you have a favorite? You mentioned gruesome sports injury pictures. Do you have a favorite? Oh, God. Uh, man, I, I mean, it's hard in baseball, right? It's, it's such a peaceful sport until it isn't. Um, I, I would, Mine is not a baseball. What is yours? I, so David Beckham tore his Achilles late in his career and went on Letterman. I think it was Letterman. And... They put up the the picture of the inside of his leg mid surgery as they were tying his Achilles back together. That's I love that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, when it when it ends well, it's all good. But uh, sure, he came back. He was fine. So I, I encourage if if you're the kind of person who loves looking at the inside of the human body, that I would encourage you to look that up on YouTube. Uh, but that's not the only thing I wanted to talk to you about because w- on a I guess a happier note, uh, Washington Nationals outfielder Juan Soto homered in not his first major league at bat, but the first on the first pitch of his first start, which is very cool, even with the qualifier. 19 years, 208 days old, the youngest player to hit a home run in the major leagues in six years. So the interesting thing about Soto is he isn't a Ronald Acuna type in that he was so hyped coming up like he's people have started talking about him and I've had to go do my homework cuz I didn't know anything about him until very very recently. Yeah, he um he he did he kind of he was not hyped in that way and um I, I think a lot of national fans were were watching his progression pretty closely lately but uh yeah, he he's um he's just 19, he's just he's just a boy and uh you know he he's fun too. Like he seems like he has quickly. I mean, having seen all all of one game with him, but he seems like he has adjusted to the majors pretty quickly. He, you know, came out uh, when he was walking back into the bullpen. He did a sort of mock Bryce Harper hair flip. Does not yet have illustrious locks like that, but you know maybe someday. And uh, you know, there's a video of him going around, or a video going around rather of um, the NASA Academy in the Dominican Republic, where everybody just about lost their minds when he hit the home run. So. You might say he's a good clubhouse guy. Um, he's somebody. I think it's totally fair to be really excited about him. Um, and uh, I am very excited about him as somebody who watches baseball and watches a lot of the Washington Nationals. Uh, I am not at all excited about him in the sense that he was born in 1998. Yeah, <laughs> I feel the mortality acutely with this one. So. I'm enjoying this though because I've I started feeling feeling that whenever uh, like. Carlos Correa, I think it's a 94 birthday. That one was was a real knife in the ribs. And ever since then, I'm just sort of numb. Like I'm staring de- death in the face no matter what. But it's fun to watch all the 23 and 24-year-olds who are really smug about that uh, feel the same thing about 
Juan Soto. Time comes for everybody. Um, but this is one one thing that stands out about him is is how positive the entire atmosphere around around him is. In even though he's only coming up in an emergency because the Nationals have had injuries to Adam Eaton and Howie Kendrick, and just really this is way earlier than they probably wanted him to to come up. You mentioned the the video at the Nationals Academy. Um, the video of his first home run. The announcers are just overjoyed. They just like you can almost hear them smiling. Uh, Chelsea Janes of the the Washington Post tweeted out that Soto takes batting practice wearing a batting helmet. He's the only player I'm aware of who does that. Like everything about this is just so adorable. It's hard not to enjoy. It is, and you know, one one thinks you probably not hit a three run home run every game going forward. Like uh, you know, as as a kind of example of uh, somebody who settled in a little bit and had a quieter bat thereafter, Brandon Crawford with the Giants hit a grand slam in his first major league, at least start. It might've been his first at bat. I think possibly it was not his first pitch though. And he hit two of four of the rest of that, that first season. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see. Soto is, is just a boy, like I said. So, um, you know, we'll see, but he's, he's somebody who I think it's right to be very, very excited about. Brandon Crawford was almost five years older the day of his debut than than Soto is now. Is that right? Yeah. Soto obviously being an outfielder profiles would be a very different kind of player, but I'll just quote uh, Jeff Paternostro of Baseball Perspectives who wrote about Soto when he was called up. Uh, he got a no more Mazzara comp uh, on last year's prospect list, uh, and uh, he quotes a I believe a scout says there's a possible Dominican Bryce Harper upside to to Soto, which is a lot of expectations to place on such a young player, but he's certainly having an enjoyable uh, major league career so far. Yeah, and you know Harper was I I believe also one of the uh, has has a distinction of being one of the only other players who's hit a home run as a as a teenager, and I think also in his his first start. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's possible. Yeah, Mike Axis of CBS uh, put together a list of the last five players who were younger than Soto to Homer in the major leagues. It goes to Jerks and Profar, and then you have to go back all the way to Adrian Beltray. Um, is the next guy on the list. Andrew Jones, Ken Griffey Jr., and the fifth last person younger than Soto to Homer in the major leagues was Robin Yount in 1975. So that's a, a but and and this goes back to Zach and I were talking about uh Ozzy Albies and Ronald Acuna. Uh who is this out of this list of five players, Profar struggled with injuries. Uh Griffey and Yount are in the Hall of Fame already. Beltray probably will be. Andrew Jones won't be, but he probably should be. So that just like there if you can do if you could just play major league baseball at 19, no matter how good you are, that's a pretty good sign for for what you're going to do going forward. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And um, you know, one of the fun parts of the season is is one of the great side effects of it being such a weird year for a lot of teams is we've gotten to see a lot of really exciting young players and and there are a lot of young prospects who are kind of on the verge of of getting their shot as well. Uh, I mean, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is now teasing us. He posted I think a few weeks ago um uh, an old picture of him in New York as the team was in New York and uh you know he'll he'll come up sooner rather than later I'm sure and uh Padres are looking into bringing up Fernando Tatis Jr. and he's fantastic and he hit 21 home runs as an 18 year old um in single a and with the White Sox they've got Halo Jimenez who's just been demolishing double a um and he's probably still a little while from getting called up but 
he should be kind of one of the final stage centerpieces of this White Sox, like hoard all of the prospects in baseball mm-hmm. strategy. So, um, yeah, there's there are a lot of these really young players who I think we get excited about. Well, when the next one of those guys comes up and homers, we'll talk to you again, or when Rich Hill starts peeing on his blisters again. Uh, but it's a pleasure having you on. Until then. Thanks, guys. Thanks again to Claire for joining us. And we'll be right back with Ben Lindbergh after this break. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I wanted to tell you about the revamped Ringer NBA show podcast. We are Monday through Friday on Mondays. John Gonzalez hosts Heat Check. Bounce around, talk to a bunch of different Ringer staffers about the weekend that was and what's coming up on Tuesdays. Chris Vernon and Kevin O'Connor, America's favorite couple. On Wednesdays, Sources Say with Chris Ryan and Julia Lippman, and maybe some interview podcasts as well. And then Thursdays, Group Chat, Chris Ryan, a rotating cast of Ringer staffers. We even put this on YouTube too. And then Friday, Draft Class, Kevin O'Connor, Jonathan Charks, sometimes Danny Chow, talking about the 2018 NBA draft, mock stuff, who's rising, who's falling, who's going to do what. You get this every day, all the way through the playoffs, the draft, and even free agency, five days a week. The Ringer NBA Show, subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we're going to close the show, as always, with Ben Lindbergh. And fittingly enough, just as we started with the opener, we're going to uh, end the show by talking about two exciting young relief pitchers. But how are you, Ben? You ready to talk about some hard-throwing kids? I am. I guess technically neither is a closer currently, but they, uh, they have finished games and will in the future. So the first guy up is Jordan Hicks, who I wrote about a couple several weeks ago at this point. He is the hardest throwing pitcher in baseball. I guess it, it feels weird to say that about anybody other than Aroldis Chapman, right? It does. Yeah, this is probably the first year where Chapman's going to be dethroned and unseated. And right now, Hicks is averaging 101.5, which looks like a typo, but is not. Chapman at a mere 99.5. So he's the old guard now, barely sitting at 100. So Hicks does seem to be at the top of that particular leaderboard, but he is very oddly near or at the bottom of some other leaderboards that you'd expect him to be at the top of. Yeah, so when we were talking about what what we wanted to cover on this week's podcast, we mentioned Jordan Hicks, and I said, bonus points if you know why he doesn't strike anybody out, because <laughs> I don't yeah. really. Yeah, well, it's a good question, because you would think that someone who throws that hard, and of course he was hitting 105 the other day against Odubel Herrera, you'd think that someone like that would be striking guys out. Usually those things are correlated. And I think there are a few reasons why Hicks does not. And we should say, not to spoil anything, we're about to be talking about Josh Hader of the Brewers. Hader has the highest strikeout minus walk rate yeah. of any pitcher in baseball this year. Hicks has between the lowest. These two, between these two, they have a totally normal strikeout rate for a late inning reliever. Yeah, basically. There have been almost 400 relievers in Major League Baseball this year. There will probably be 600 by the end of the year. That's you know 13 per team already. There's no way to keep track of all these guys. So we're just going with the extreme opposite ends of the spectrum here. So Hicks has such a low strikeout rate. 
I think for one thing, it's because he throws a sinker, which maybe makes it even more impressive that he is throwing over 100 because mm-hmm. usually a sinker is a little bit slower, is more tailored toward getting contact and getting ground balls. And he does do that. He has a, a 60% ground ball rate, which is the one thing that has really kept him out of trouble so far. So that's part of it. Part of it is just that he's wild. He walks a lot of guys. He is often behind in the count, and that's not conducive to getting whiffs. But even when he throws a really fast fastball and it's in the zone, he just gets an extremely low rate of you know, swings and misses on those pitches. And I think it's it's not a fantastic spin pitch. It's not like he's throwing it high in the zone and getting those kinds of chases. And he throws the sinker about three quarters of the time. And right now he's pairing it with a slider, which he can't control at all, seemingly. And so he's getting no whiffs on the slider. So it's just sinker after sinker. And it's kind of the old saw about how you have to do something other than throw hard to beat major league hitters. Hicks is the proof of that axiom. Yeah. And you mentioned the Oduble Herrera at bat. There was the the gift that was going around of... I don't even know how to describe that pitch, the 105 mile an hour fastball <laughs> with with what looked like about four feet of arm side run right. <laughs> uh, that wound up at the backstop. And he did strike out Odubel Herrera, uh, ending yes. his, I think it was 45 game on base streak, which is incredible that it bears mentioning all on its own. And Odubel ended up on first base anyway, because the ball yes. also eluded the catcher. Exactly. Perfect encapsulation of the Jordan Hicks experience, strikeout, wild pitch. I guess the strikeout part is pretty rare, though. Yeah, so he has 16 walks as we speak in 22 innings. That's not good. And only nine strikeouts. And I mean, the fact that he throws this hard, obviously, it's impressive that he has the velocity. It's impressive that he made it to the majors after never pitching higher than high A, unless you count the Arizona Fall League. So he's 21. He doesn't have a lot of minor league experience. It's the kind of thing where he has the raw stuff that at some point, probably if his arm holds up under this abuse, Jordan Hicks is going to be good. But right now it's not clear that he is. And so his stat line is extremely confusing because he has a 2.05 ERA as we speak. I was going to ask you about this. Yeah, everything else is awful. <laughs> Don't look at his XFIP or his FIP or any other kind of defense independent stat. And I mean, partially that's because he does get ground balls and he could get himself out of jams with double plays. But, you know, you might think while well, he throws 105, it's hard to square him up. Maybe he's getting soft contact. No, he's not getting soft contact. Guys are hitting him pretty hard. So right now he has a sub 200 BABIP. He didn't do that in A-ball, so I don't think it's likely that he can do that in the majors. There is some kind of correction coming here. I was going to ask about his two ERA despite the strikeout rate, and uh, I saw his FIP is close to five and thought, well, FIP is kind of simplistic. I'm going to go to BP and check out his DRA. Would you <laughs> yeah, like to – do you like, know what his DRA is? Last time I looked, it was – over nine. It's like 9.4 or something. 9.41. 9.41. <laughs> <Yeah>. 9. <laughs> That's not good. You could take 15 miles an hour off his fastball <laughs> and still not expect to have a DRA that high. And I know it's 20 innings, but, and I'm, and I'm optimistic about Hicks going forward because yeah. he, he's still only 21 years old. Most, most pitchers can't, I don't want to say most pitchers can't control uh, where their stuff is going, but He's he seems like the archetype of the guy who's just n- going to need to get polished. And maybe the right. the best version of him is fastball in the high 90s with a little bit more idea of where it's going. He sort of reminiscent of Armando Benitez in this respect, where mm-hmm. he was at his most effective 
early in the count where he was just taking a little bit off his fastball. He threw so hard that he was able to take a little bit off to control it better. And then if he needed to, he could just aim right down the middle uh, and hit 100 and it would go somewhere. Uh, yeah. Maybe Armando Benitez isn't the most encouraging comp for a future closer. <laughs> he had some good times. <laughs> yeah, he, I mean, he was good for a while. I think you're right. He's kind of the classic pitcher, not a thrower at this point, Hicks. And and that's to be expected given his age and, and experience. So you figure a guy who throws this hard, you can't really teach that. Hopefully you can teach the other stuff. You can teach some kind of control or feel for the breaking ball. It's funny. You joke about taking 15 miles per hour off the sinker. That is that's not a joke. You can no. do that. That's a, yeah. I'm Someone is serious. doing that. Adam Clymer on the Padres, another interesting reliever to know. He is a rookie. He's 27. He is a, a sinker baller who's averaging 87 on his sinker, and he struck out 31 in 24 and two-thirds innings. So it's not all speed and velocity, and Hicks is just the, the best possible example of that. So, I mean, that pitch that you mentioned that was gift and was going around everywhere to Herrera – on one hand, it was extremely impressive because it was so fast and there was so much movement. On the other hand, it was extremely unimpressive. I think it was Andy McCullough who tweeted something like, I prefer strikes. So, yeah, you would rather have that be in the strike zone, even if it was 10 miles per hour mm. slower or something. And who knows? Even if you that know, is just Andy McCullough being difficult. But. It, it could be. But, you know, I think at some point, maybe Hicks is just looking at the radar gun too much now. I don't know if he's trying to top himself every time out there or whether it's just that he needs something to go with that sinker and hopefully someday he'll have it so let's go to a guy who actually is getting well hicks is getting people out but a guy who's throwing strikes and yes. getting strikeouts josh Hader and you know, 101 consistently from the right side is impressive Hader is 95 topping out at 99 from the left mm-hmm. and that's i i'm it's probably not more impressive but this is like Harder throwing Andrew Miller is the profile and he's striking out like two thirds of his outs are coming by strikeout and he's routinely pitching two innings or more. He might be I I was high on him coming into the season. I don't know if I saw this coming, though. Yeah, it sort of feels like he's just more Andrew Miller than Andrew Miller in every possible way. Mm -hmm. He's kind of like what we were talking about with Miller a year or two ago, except even more extreme, both in terms of how he's being used and how unhittable he is. So, yes, he throws hard and he's one of these all arms and legs guys. So it's very funky and kind of an unusual release point. And so the element of surprise and the deception is probably playing some part in this, but he is just totally unhittable to the point where it seems like he's sort of just usurped the title of best reliever in baseball. All of a sudden, everyone who is usually in that conversation is kind of falling away from it with every hater outing. So hater going back to the beginning of last last August, which is kind of when he reached a new level, like he came up earlier last season, but he had been a starter and here he was working out of the bullpen. He had had control issues in the minors. Suddenly he got them under control. And so going back to the beginning of August, it's 55 innings. He struck out 100 guys and he has probably leveled up even higher this year when he is uh, running a 59.2% strikeout rate right now. And to put that perspective, to put that into perspective, only two relievers have ever broken 50, Aroldis Chapman and Craig Kimbrell, and they barely did it. So Hader is really just breaking the scale here. He even when he throws pitches in the strike zone, 
The contact rate when hitters swing is 62.9%. That would be the lowest ever. Just about everything he's doing right now would be the best ever. And really the most impressive part, I think, is the bulk that he's giving the Brewers so many innings. And, you know, you look at the all-time single-season reliever strikeout rate, which is Dick Raddatz who uh, was just a a monster for the Red Sox in the early 60s. In fact, his nickname was The Monster, so he was very aptly nicknamed. He struck out 181 guys back in 1964, and at that time, he was an outlier. He was striking out like 10, 11 per nine at a time when the league was striking out five or six per nine, but he also threw 157 innings that year. Mm -hmm. So I didn't think that his record of striking out 181 batters was breakable, But right now, as we speak, even though Hayter hasn't pitched since Saturday, he is on pace to break that record. He's on pace for 189 strikeouts. And that's because not only is his strikeout rate just off the scale, but he's doing multiple innings almost every time out. I think it's now five of his last six outings have been at least two innings long. And that's the really impressive part. He is the true fireman reincarnated. I saw somewhere... uh over the past week, Max Scherzer uh, is striking out batters at a rate where he would need something like 240 innings to break Nolan Ryan's record. (laughs) And he's probably not going to get 240 innings, but that that many innings in a season is well within living memory. It's happened in the 2010s. So it's we're reaching strikeout rate levels. I mean, Raw strikeout totals, obviously, are the combination of pitching a lot of innings and striking out a lot of guys. And strikeout rates are reaching the point where uh, where you don't have to throw where the number of innings you have to throw is attainable. Um, right. I'm going to put a, I'm going to put my Bill Simmons hat on and okay. ask you what a Josh Hader Cy Young 2018 looks like. <laughs> I mean, this, <laughs> I think I, okay. I wouldn't be at all surprised if Hater got strong consideration. I mean, I think it's we've moved a bit away from the era of relievers getting really strong award consideration, but that's in part because of the way that relievers are used or, you know, have been used lately where it's just an inning at a time. And I think there's this growing understanding that no matter how good you are in an inning at a time, that's just not going to equal what a starter is giving you. But For one thing, starters aren't giving you as much as they used to, right? I mean, no one got to 215 innings in a season last year. So if no one gets up there and Hayter ends up pitching triple digits, then, I mean, it's tough not to give it to him, especially given the leverage of his role, given the Brewers, if he actually pulls off that season, will have been in the hunt, if not actually locking up a playoff spot. I'm not going to say that he's going to lead the league in war or anything. It would be really difficult for a reliever to do that. But given the role in which he pitches, I think he will get consideration and should get some consideration. I don't know that he should be the favorite or that I would vote for him. But I mean, look at any kind of context sensitive value stat and it will tell you that haters really valuable. My only reservation here is I wonder whether he can keep up this pace. I mean, he was very recently a starter, so you'd think that his arm has this in him. But the Brewers have the best bullpen ERA collectively and the highest bullpen war this season. That is largely hater, but not entirely hater. It's Jeremy Jeffress has been great. Dan Jennings, my man Matt Albers still putting up zeros out there. And now Corey Knable is back and getting saves. So I just wonder whether there are enough innings to go around there or where eventually we'll start to see Hater settle into a slightly more conventional role. 
Yeah, I think it it requires a couple things that he can't control. And one of them is sort of the realization that uh, if he puts up like a, a four or five win season, which is, I guess, theoretically possible, that mm-hmm. would be probably more valuable just because of context than a four or five win season from a starter. And I don't right. know if we've gotten so like we just got past the point where we stopped looking at wins and era and nothing else Mm -hmm. and i don't know if we're far enough to that point as like a voting body uh but i think it would have to it would you'd also need probably a serious injury or uh some sort of fall off to at least max scherzer probably some combination of center guard to grom john gray aaron nola Mm -hmm. uh and the other thing is you need to base the case heavily on win probability added where i've got the leaderboard He's about tied with Scherzer. He's a little bit ahead. He's ahead of every pit, every starter in baseball except for Justin Verlander. And but he's also trailing Jeffress, yeah, uh, very slightly. So right. that's the. You know, I mean, I had actually forgot that we did this. This sort of half trolling Zach Britton for MVP <laughs> slash Cy Young campaign a couple years ago. But mm-hmm. that's the kind of argument you'd need to make, right? Yeah, and I think it, it's tough because historically when relievers have won, it's the guy at the back end racking up huge save totals. And Hater has six saves right now, but it seems like Knebel is probably settling back into that traditional closer role. So it would be even more unusual for a setup man to get that kind of award consideration. So I think you'd have to overcome that hurdle too. But I mean, everywhere I look these days, I'm seeing a new Josh Hader article and something about Josh Hader, Cy Young, Josh Hater MVP. So the conversation is bubbling up there. And if he were somehow to keep up this pace, I think he would end up somewhere up there. And uh, he's kind of what you hope that Hicks might be someday in that when Hater came up, he didn't have great control, but he suddenly managed to start throwing strikes midway through last year. And similarly, he was all fastball last year and he had a great fastball, but now he throws a slider that is also really good and that he can throw for strikes and gets tons of swings and misses. So he is getting better and better as the games go on. Yeah. So I feel like this is well known that he came to Milwaukee for in that Carlos Gomez trade in 2015 with a big package for Mike Fires and Carlos or Carlos Gomez. Uh, Brett Phillips also in that trade, but he came to Milwaukee from the Baltimore Orioles. So <laughs> you, you, following the Jake Arrieta path of of discovering yourself after leaving the Orioles minor league system as a pitcher. Speaking of which, I've been getting yes. a lot of correspondence on Twitter for my son, Big Mike Bauman, who's oh, recently been promoted and and shoving. Yeah, good so. for him. He has a, a Josh Hader-esque ERA in A-ball, so he's he's moving up to high A now. Double A, here we come. Yeah, he might be the second or third best pitcher in the Orioles system right now, including <laughs> the, the major league staff. So Yes, it's possible. We'll come back next week. We'll have a whole new slate of stories and young pitchers. I'm sure there will be some other kid we had never heard of three weeks ago throwing 104 miles an hour. So yep, there always we'll is. We'll talk to... Talk to you about him next week, whatever his name might be. Relievers, the renewable resource of baseball in 2018. All right. Thanks for having me. That'll do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB show. Thanks to Zach Cram, Claire McNear, and Ben Lindbergh for joining me. Thanks to Jim Cunningham for producing this episode. Thanks to Sergio Romo, Juan Soto, Josh Hader, and Jordan Hicks for providing content. And thank you for listening. Enjoy this week's games, not just Major League Baseball, but it's Conference Tournament Week in Division I College Baseball, a sport that is near and dear to my heart, so I encourage you to check that out. We'll be back to discuss all of it next week on the Ringer MLB Show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.